think we can probably get started. I have a ton of material to get through, want to uh, get to all of it. Um, we're going to, uh, we're doing the first part of a two-part series on John Wesley, who is the founder of Methodism. And the Methodist movement is one of the most influential Christian movements in um, American history and really throughout the world. Um, they've done a lot to uh, send forth missions and evangelize throughout the world. Um, there are large denominations still to this day, a very significant movement. So we want to look at the founder of that movement. So John Wesley, uh, born June 28, 1703, died March 2nd, 1791. So his lifetime spanned most of the 18th century. He was an English clergyman, theologian, and evangelist. He was a leader of a revival movement within the Church of England, known initially as Methodism. The societies he founded became the dominant form of the independent Methodist movement that continues to this day. And Methodism, also called the Methodist movement, is a group of historically related denominations of Protestant Christianity, which derive their doctrine of practice and belief from the life and teachings of John Wesley, who was thoroughly within the Protestant tradition. George Whitefield, whom we talked about last time, and John's brother, Charles Wesley, were also significant early leaders in the movement. And they were named Methodists for the methodical way in which they carried out their Christian faith. Methodism originated as a revival movement within the 18th century Church of England and became a separate denomination only after Wesley's death. So Wesley did not start off like the dissenters, like the pilgrims, like the separatists, like all these other groups that wanted to break from the mother church, so to speak. He wanted to bring this renewal uh, movement in, into the Church of England and keep it there. He had no intention of separating. Um, and, but the movement spread throughout the British Empire, and we will talk about the later developments in the Methodist movement um, you know, when we get into 19th century America. Um, and it spread through the United States, throughout the British Empire. Nearly every nation in which Britain had a presence, um, Methodists went as well. And they went to non, you know, they went to uh, nations outside the British Empire. And because of vigorous missionary work, um, today Methodists number about 80 million members worldwide. So it continues to be a flourishing church to this day. So John was the 15th child of these two people that you see pictured on the screen, Susanna and Samuel Wesley. Samuel was a Church of England rector or pastor, and he was a poet. The Wesley children ultimately totaled 19, but only nine lived beyond infancy. This was a time period when infant mortality was pretty high. John's younger brother, Charles, was one of those who lived into adulthood, and the two brothers remained close during the time of their education and later ministry. And as was common for that time, upbringing for children was very strict. Both the boys and girls were taught to read as soon as they could walk and talk, and they were taught Latin and Greek in addition to other subjects. Imagine learning Latin and Greek 
from the time you're a toddler. <laughs> the children were also expected to memorize large portions of the New Testament. Susanna Wesley examined each child before the midday meal and before evening prayer. So she spent a few minutes with each of her children um, instilling principles of Christianity in them. The children were not allowed to eat between meals. That was important. And if you've got, you know, umpteen children, that, you know, that would make a difference. <laughs> they were interviewed singly by their mother uh, one evening each week for the purpose of intensive spiritual instruction. So Susanna certainly had a, a large and busy household to manage, and yet she managed to make time to spend with each child as an individual. In 1714, at age 11, Wesley was sent to the Charterhouse School in London, where he lived the studious, methodical, and religious life he had known at home. And indeed, you know, for English Protestants of this time period, life was probably studious, methodical, and religious, um, you know, if you were a part of the gentry, if you were not part of the lower classes. So a very typical life that John Wesley had compared to many uh, people in England at that time. But one incident marked an otherwise routine existence for Wesley as a child. On February 9, 1709, when Wesley was five years old, the rectory roof caught on fire late at night. So it was common practice for the church to provide housing for the pastor and his family. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, um, and fires were very common in England because of the way they constructed their houses and the fact that everybody had a fire burning in their fireplace all night long and every day. So fires were a commonplace thing. But uh, the rectory caught fire uh, on this February 9th in 1709, and sparks falling on the children's beds and cries of fire from the street roused the Wesleys. The family was able to get out of the house, except for John, who was left stranded on an upper floor. With stairs aflame and the roof about to collapse, Wesley was lifted out of a window by a parishioner standing on another man's shoulders. So he was rescued in the nick of time. Wesley later used the phrase, a brand plucked out of the fire, quoting Zechariah 3.2 to describe the incident. And um, I've uh, put up here... Um, not just Zechariah 3.2, but the whole passage, and I think it's important to read this because this would have meant a great deal to John Wesley. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a log snatched from the fire? Now, I'm quoting out of the New American Standard Bible, but from the King James, this statement, is this not a log would have been, is this not a brand plucked out of the fire or snatched from the fire? Now, Joshua was, was clothed in filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he responded and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your guilt away from you and will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, Have them put a clean headband on his head. So they put the clean headband on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, The Lord of armies says this, 
If you walk in my ways and perform my service, then you will both govern my house and be in charge of my courtyards. And I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. So this, would have, this passage probably meant a great deal to John Wesley throughout his lifetime. This childhood deliverance did subsequently become part of the Wesley legend, attesting to his special destiny and extraordinary work. So as a young man in June of 1720, Wesley entered Christ Church, Oxford. So he went to college at Oxford, and after graduating in 1724, he stayed on at Christ Church to study for his master's degree. He was ordained a deacon on September 25th, 1725. An ordination to holy orders within the Church of England at this time was required to be a fellow uh, and a tutor at Oxford. So it, to advance in his career, he needed to become a deacon, and then later he would be ordained to the priesthood. On March 17, 1726, Wesley was unanimously elected a fellow of Lincoln College, Oxford. This carried with it the right to a room at the college and regular salary. And as the son of a clergyman with many siblings, you know, he was not well-to-do. Um, so it was important for him to gain this position at Oxford. Okay, and here we have a picture of Thomas Akempis, uh, which was a um, uh, Dutch um, theologian from the Middle Ages. Um, and during his time at Oxford, Wesley read the works of Thomas Akempis, and he also read the works of Jeremy Taylor. Now, Thomas Akempis was Dutch, Jeremy Taylor was English. Thomas Akempis, you may have heard uh, of him. He was the writer of The Imitation of Christ, and he lived from 1380 to 1471. So late Middle Ages theologian um, and uh, author. And he was, um, uh, rather, this book, The Imitation of, of Christ, is still read by many Christians today, and it what has been historically one of the most popular and best-known Christian devotional works. He was a member of a movement that was circulating in his time called the Modern Devotion. And this was simply a spiritual movement during the late Middle Ages. Akempis was also a follower, follower of Geert Groot and Florence Radowins, also Dutch theologians, uh, who were the founders of the Brethren of the Common Life. Um, so, like some of the other movements that we've touched on, I haven't really talked about them much, but the Waldensians, the Lollards, and some of the other groups that circulated throughout Europe that were not formally recognized by the church, there was another group called the Brethren of the Common Life. Now, they were a Roman Catholic, pietistic, religious lay community founded in the Netherlands in the 14th century. So, in other words, these are people... I think the best way you could understand them is to think of them as they were like monks, but they weren't ordained. They weren't formally a, a part of a monastic order. Um, it, you know, it was a lot more loosely structured than that because their community had a lot in common with the monastic Roman Catholic orders of the Middle Ages. There were many people in, you know, starting in the Middle Ages and beyond 
who, who wanted to live a religious life, but for various reasons did not want to become ordained or take on holy orders or be subject to that much, you know, because that would really shape the whole course of your life. But nonetheless, you want to live a life devoted to Christ. Yes. So the brethren banded together in communities, giving up their worldly goods to live chaste and strictly regulated lives in common houses. So again, they're, they're, you know, they're acting like monks, but technically they're not monks. Although not requiring a lifetime commitment as the monastic orders did, the brethren devoted every waking hour to attending divine service, the reading and preaching of sermons, laboring productively, and taking meals in common that were accompanied by the reading aloud of scripture. And as Greg just mentioned, Martin Luther studied under the brethren at Magdeburg in Germany before going on to the University of Erfurt. Erasmus and the physician Vesalius, when we were talking about the scientific revolution and innovations in medicine, um, in the 15 and 1600s, Vesalius, we talked about him. He also studied under the brethren. And the brethren spread throughout Germany and Holland. Okay, Jeremy Taylor, another uh, writer whose works influenced John Wesley. Now, Jeremy Taylor lived about 100 years before Wesley, and he was a cleric in the Church of England, and he achieved fame as an author during the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell. So if you remember, we were talking about England in the 1600s. They had a civil war. Mostly it was about religious things, but also political things. And um, the king was executed, and so then England is left without a king. And uh, the Puritans set up um, a government. And basically, Oliver Cromwell is kind of in charge of everything. So during this time period, Jeremy Taylor uh, did his work. And he is sometimes known as the Shakespeare of divines for his poetic style of expression. And he is frequently cited as one of the greatest prose writers in the English language. So for an English writer to be compared to Shakespeare in his lifetime, you know, that meant he was pretty good. Two of Taylor's works that were influential on Wesley and others in this time period are The Rule and Exercises of Holy Living, written in 1650, The Rule and Exercises of Holy Dying, 1651. And if you look at these book titles, The Rule, that's what the monastic orders talked about when they talked about their way of life. They lived according to the rule. This is how you should live your life. And in a time period where people's lifespans were much shorter than they are today, dying was much more commonplace. People had to deal with it much more. So the rule and exercises of holy dying would have spoken you know, quite significantly to people in that time period. The rule of holy living provided a manual of Christian practice which has retained its place with dev devout readers. It deals with the means and instruments of obtaining every virtue and the remedies against every vice and considerations serving to the resisting of all temptations together with prayers con containing the whole duty of a Christian. Wesley also read William Law's Christian Perfection and a Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. 
Law was a contemporary of Wesley. So Wesley's studies led him to resolve to keep the law of God inwardly and outwardly, as sacredly as possible. And this is a key, I probably should have underlined this or highlighted, believing that in obedience he would find salvation. So my opinion is he was essentially approaching Christianity from a works point of view at this point in his life. Uh, in other words, it, he had a sincere, I believe he had a sincere desire to know the Lord, and he thought that the best way to do that would simply be to keep all these rules, and in, in doing so, he would find salvation. He pursued a rigidly methodical and abstemious life, abstemious meaning abstaining from so many things, studied scripture and performed his religious duties diligently, depriving himself so that he would have alms to give. So this relatively poor son of a clergyman who himself was not well off uh, would simply fast so that he would save money on food so that he could give the money to the poor. He would do a lot of things like this. He began, I believe sincerely, to seek after holiness of heart and life. While continuing his studies, Wesley taught Greek and philosophy, lectured on the New Testament, and moderated daily disputations at Oxford. However, a call to ministry intruded upon his academic career. In August 1727, after completing his master's degree, Wesley returned to Epworth, where his father was pastor. His father had requested John's assistance in serving the neighboring cure or parish of uh, the, town, the village, it's really a village, of Root, England. Ordained a priest on September 22nd, 1728, Wesley served as a parish curate or pastor for two years. Wesley returned to Oxford in November 1729 at the request of the rector of Lincoln College and to maintain his status as junior fellow. Uh, even though he was serving this, this pastorate in a village, uh, he certainly did not want to lose his place at Oxford. During Wesley's absence from Oxford, his younger brother Charles, who lived from 1707 to 1788, attended Christ Church College. And Charles was the 18th child of Susanna and Samuel Wesley. Along with two fellow students, Charles formed a small club or prayer group in 1727 for the purpose of study and the pursuit of a devout and disciplined Christian life. On John's return to Oxford, John became the leader of the group, which increased somewhat in number and greatly in commitment. The group met daily from six until nine for prayer and the reading of the Psalms and the Greek New Testament. Thus was formed the Wesley's Holy Club, as it was mockingly called by fellow students. Others called them the Methodists. So the typical student at Oxford, honestly, is a lot like the typical college student of today, um, you know, studying hard and partying harder. Um, and, and if you recall from last time, George Whitefield was also a member of the Holy Club. And much like the, the uh, Roman Catholic monastic orders of the Middle Ages, and as we talked about earlier, the Brethren of the Common Life, members of the group tried to systematically serve God every hour of the day. 
The club members set aside time for praying, examining their spiritual lives, studying the Bible, and meeting together. In addition, they took food to poor families, visited lonely people in prison, and taught orphans how to read. So they weren't just content with, you know, we're just going to have our own little club and devote ourselves to these spiritual pursuits. We are also going to reach out into the community. And that is a, uh, a hallmark of Methodist activity to this day. Members celebrated Holy Communion frequently, usually weekly. At that time, the Church of England uh, it wasn't a common practice for Holy Communion um, for many people to take communion weekly. Um, and they also fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. Fellows of the Holy Club also studied and discussed the Greek New Testament as well as the classics. And it should be remembered that the Holy Club was conducting their activities completely within the context of the Church of England. Again, they did not seek to be revolutionaries. They did not seek to separate from the church. They did not want to protest against the church. There was nothing, you know, no hallmarks of a Protestant move, uh, pro, uh, uh, again, a revolutionary or protesting movement. They did not want to set up a separate organization. The emphasis on holy living and devotion to God was primarily a personal stance. In other words, this is how we are going to conduct our lives. We are going to try to share the gospel with others and draw them into this way of life but we are all going to do this within the context of the Church of England. And so this holy club or group was simply a group of like-minded individuals. They also didn't really seek official recognition from within the church. It was informal. Okay, now comes a major shift in Wesley's life. There is a call to the new world. On October 14, 1735, Wesley and his brother Charles sailed on the ship, the Simmons, from Gravesend in Kent, England, headed for Savannah, Georgia, in the American colonies at the request of James Oglethorpe, the colony founder. Oglethorpe wanted Wesley to be the minister of the newly formed Savannah Parish, a new town laid out in accordance with the famous Oglethorpe Plan. And just a side point here, um, this Oglethorpe plan and the idea of creating a, a city, you know, we're going to just build this whole city all at once. I mean, traditionally, cities, how did they come about? They started off as little villages, and then they got bigger for various reasons, usually economic or sometimes political. They get bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's no, you know, most ancient cities in throughout Europe, for example, um, it's a hodgepodge of different kinds of buildings and winding streets and nothing systematic. But, you know, in the, in the 18th century, the ideas of the Enlightenment translated over into things like city planning. The idea of planning a city, to us, you know, well, that happens all the time. You know, we see new developments springing up. Um, you know, people buy big tracts of land and they bring in earth-moving equipment, they lay out the streets, they build the houses, and everything is planned. But this was a radical idea in the 18th century to plan a city. And James Oglethorpe, you know, was kind of at the, he's like, I'm going to build this whole new, uh, you know, I'm coming to this pristine wilderness, 
nobody's messed it up yet. I'm going to create this whole new city, you know, kind of the idea of utopia almost. Um, we're going to create the city. It's going to be well planned out, and the lives of the citizens will be much better for that. Um, so, you know, certainly Oglethorpe being someone from England at this time period in history, if we're going to have a properly constructed city, you know, we need a church, we need a minister, we need someone to minister to the people um, to meet their spiritual needs. So, uh, Oglethorpe had heard of the Wesleys, and he said, come on over and, and uh, be the pastor here in my new city, my new colony. So it was on the voyage to the, the colonies that the Wesleys first came into contact with Moravian settlers, the Moravian brethren. And Wesley was influenced by their deep faith and spirituality rooted in pietism. Now we've talked a little bit about this group before, but I'm going to review a little bit of this material. Uh, but um, there is an incident during this voyage. A storm comes up. The mast, the main mast, breaks off the ship. If that happens, you know, you're pretty much a goner, right? Well, the English are panicking, but the Moravians calmly sang hymns and prayed, and the ship did not sink, and they did make it to Georgia. This experience led Wesley to believe that the Moravians possessed an inner strength which he lacked. The deeply personal religion that the Moravian pietists practiced heavily influenced Wesley and is reflected in his theology of Methodism. And again, to review a little bit, the Moravian Brethren movement began with the 15th century Bohemian Reformation. So we have talked about John Huss and the movement that emerged in this part of Europe at that time. So the Moravians could trace their heritage in, uh, back to as early as 1457 in Bohemia, in eastern Germany, and today's Czech Republic, and the early Reformation-era preaching of John Huss. Seeking to escape the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation in the 1600s, which hit this part of Germany and the Czech Republic hard, um, many of these Christians fled west into Saxony, which is present-day Germany, and other provinces within Germany. By the early 1700s, the Moravians had established a new community under the protection of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Other persecuted groups came as well. On August 13, 1727, the community experienced a visitation of the Holy Spirit similar to that recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So essentially, they had, a, um, you know, a charismatic visitation of the Holy Spirit. And it changed the community. By the 1730s, the Moravians had established continuous 24-7 prayer that ran for 100 years. They published the Daily Watchwords. Uh, it's a de devotional publications to assist Christians, and these continue to be published today. The Moravian group still exists. They had established 30 settlements which emphasized prayer and worship, a simple lifestyle, and generosity with wealth. They did not live communally. They retained the practice of each person having their own personal property, but they practiced a great deal of generosity so that 
Essentially, there were no poor people in their midst. The first worldwide Protestant missions were conducted by Moravian lay people. So this idea of people who are not ordained to the priesthood uh, or are not professional clergy could go forth and share the gospel, they started that. Hundreds of small renewal groups operated within the existing churches of Europe, and they were sometimes known as diaspora societies. They were spread out. They were dispersed. These groups encouraged personal prayer and worship, Bible study, confession of sins, and mutual accountability. Now, arriving in Georgia in 1736, Wesley took the post of Vicar of Christ Church in Savannah. He ministered there from February 1736 to December 1737, so not quite two years. Now, this building pictured here is the present-day Christ Church in Savannah, Georgia. The building that Wesley would have preached in is long gone, but uh, you can go to Savannah and you know, walk inside this church today. Um, while in Georgia, Wesley founded one of the first Sunday schools in the United States. So he began this idea of Christian education taking place on Sunday in addition to uh, regular worship. Wesley approached the Georgia mission as an opportunity to revive primitive Christianity in a primitive environment. Now, I was thinking a lot about this last night. Wesley came to the New World really not knowing what was there, not knowing what to expect. He knew there were English settlers. The colony of Georgia had a lot of people within it who you know, were kind of the dispossessed of England. Um, you know, there were Native Americans there. And I think he probably would have approached this, this mission work in Georgia as, I'm coming, I'm representing the Church of England, I'm going to help civilize society. You know, this Christian influence is going to shape this colony of people. Um, and I'm, I'm bringing the, you know, but he was bringing the Church of England along with his personal devotion to Christ. So, uh, you know, he kind of had, looking back, uh, you know, thinking about this, I'm like, did you not know what you were getting into? Well, of course he didn't. He had no idea. <laughs> so, like so many of us, when we venture out in, you know, into new territory, we think we know, but we encounter something perhaps very different than what we envisioned. So Wesley's primary stated goal was to evangelize the Native American people, which I find kind of astounding. I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, he was being a little bit neo-colonial or, you know, like kind of like the Spanish did when they came into South, South America and Central America. We're going to, you know, the Spanish came and said, we're going to make new Spain. And perhaps Wesley kind of thought that way too. I'm going to evangelize the native peoples and they're going to come to Christ and they're going to be kind of like us. Um, now, he never even really got to minister much to the Native Americans because there was a shortage of clergy. I mean, you know, if you're the only pastor for hundreds of miles around in a virtual wilderness, there aren't even hardly any roads, you know, people are living, you know, pretty much survival-type lives, how are you going to minister to all these people? It's going to be very difficult. 
So his ministry ended up largely confined to European settlers, other English people, essentially. Wesley did manage to gather around him a group of devoted Christians who met in a number of small group religious societies. He was also able to increase attendance at communion. Nonetheless, Wesley's high church ministry, he was viewed as high church, uh, it was controversial among the colonists. You know, here's a guy educated at Oxford, you know, thoroughly English in his outlook, and he's coming into this wilderness frontier, and the two just aren't meshing very well. And um, the whole endeavor kind of ended in, in disappointment or disillusion, I guess, um, because Wesley fell in love with a young woman. Her name was Sophia or Sophie Hopke. But he hesitated to marry her. Now, he could have married her. Church of England clergy are allowed to marry. But he hesitated to do so because he felt his first priority in Georgia, again, was to be a missionary to the Native Americans, and that wasn't really even happening. And, and he was also interested in the practice of clerical celibacy within early Christianity. So all of his studying and all of his research and his desire to live a truly godly life you know, he felt he was torn. He wanted to marry this woman. He was in love with her. And yet he felt maybe God's calling me to celibacy. So he initiated a courtship with her. Now, in those times, if you began courtship, it better end in marriage or things would not go well for you, socially speaking. Um, he declined to propose. He decided, you know, he wavered back and forth. He sought he sought counsel from some different Moravian people, and they weren't super helpful. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he's, you know, wavering, should I, you know. In the meantime, you know, and he was, this, this woman was younger than him, and she is thinking, like any 18th century woman would, if this man is courting me, that means we're gonna get married. And then he didn't propose. Um, so this was a very serious social breach. Following her marriage to another man, Wesley believed that Sophia's former zeal for practicing the Christian faith declined, and he made it known to the whole community how he felt. Wesley denied her communion after she failed to signify to him in advance her intention of taking it, as was strict Church of England practice. So if you were going to take communion, you had to let the pastor know that you intended to do so at the next service in which communion would be offered. You, you know, you had to uh, go through uh, formal repentance, confession of sins. You would have to prepare to take communion. So Wesley, you know, he's like, well, you, got, you married this other man. You're not as zealous as you used to be. Uh, because she was part of one of Wesley's little prayer groups. You're not as zealous as you used to be. After getting married, you know, she's a married woman now. She has a household to maintain, a husband uh, to care for. She wasn't attending the small group meetings anymore. Um, many people took offense at what had happened between um, John Wesley and Sophia Hopke. And it happened that shortly after her marriage, she had a miscarriage. Many of her relatives attributed this to Wesley's harshness. Um, they were really getting upset with him. 
Now, again, this is, you know, there's not that many people here. You know, you might think, well, he's in Georgia, right? Yeah, but there weren't, you know, there was just this small group of British settlers. So, you know, this was happening, all of this was happening under a microscope, so to speak. And for many in Savannah, his high church approach to pastoring had seemed out of place in a frontier town. And now, having played with a girl's feelings the way he had, was he right to punish her for having married another? And then finally, Sophia's relatives um, brought, you know, they persuaded the authorities to bring charges against him for defamation. And they drummed up some other charges. They wanted him out. They were just like, you know, we're done with you. <laughs> um, and, of course, Sophia's husband was pretty upset. Um, and he was arrested, but then released without bail. And Sophie had submitted an affidavit, uh, affidavit rather, stating that he had proposed to her, but that she had rejected him. But then later, she rescinded the affidavit, you know, went back on it and saying, well, this isn't true. So, you know, what are you going to do? And many of the charges were not really legitimate in the first place. Um, you know, in a society where church and state you're living in a small community. Church and state are intertwined. Um, what might appear to us to be purely a civil or religious matter could become a criminal matter. All of, all of these different aspects of their society are kind of converging. And, you know, they can't, really, they can't really throw him in jail for these things. They can't really try him for a lot of these things. But the charges of, you know, today, if you defame someone and that person brings a lawsuit against you, is treated as a civil matter, not a criminal matter. Um, you know, you're not going to go to jail for defaming someone if the charges are proved. You will simply pay a fine. But in those times, again, all of these things are kind of, you know, merging together. But it was come, becoming clear that Wesley could not continue as pastor of Christ Church and his ministry was taken over by another pastor from South Carolina. Wesley finally left Georgia. He kind of had to sneak out. He escaped to Charleston, South Carolina to get, a boat, to get on a boat back to England, and he left on December 22, 1737. Wesley returned to England depressed and beaten. It was at this point that he turned to the Moravians. This experience, you know, he felt like a total failure. And both he and Charles received counsel from a young Moravian missionary, Peter Bowler, who was temporarily in England awaiting permission to depart for Georgia himself. Bowler told Wesley that he, Wesley, had no saving faith, that he only believed intellectually, and that he still hoped to become righteous by virtue of his own deeds, lacking the true faith that comes in an instant bringing rebirth and an utter certainty of salvation. Wesley also attended a Moravian meeting in Aldersgate Street, London, on May 24, 1738. And there he heard a reading of Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. You know, very key. Uh, Bowler also exhorted Wesley to preach faith till you have it. Wesley followed Bowler's advice, meeting the following day with a condemned man in the castle prison. It was the first time that Wesley had offered salvation by faith alone. 
It was also the first time he had preached to someone at the point of death, having previously denied the possibility of someone instantaneously converting. You know, if you preach to someone who's going to be executed the next day, it's got to be an instantaneous conversion. They don't have a whole lifetime to work out their salvation by obedience. You know, and, and this was Wesley's mindset previously was, you, you know, you have to live a holy life. Well, this, you know, this man he's preaching to has no such opportunity. And along with Wesley's Aldersgate experience and the conversations with Bowler, Wesley began intensely reading the book of Acts. At first, his thought was, oh, that was then, this is now. You know, just like many today read the book of Acts and think, well, that was that time period. Things are different today. But his understanding was beginning to change. Wesley recounted his Aldersgate experience in his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. A few weeks later, Wesley preached a sermon on the doctrine of personal salvation by faith, which was followed by another, on God's grace, free in all, and free for all. And this is a quote from a uh, Methodist writer's um, book on In the Shadow of Aldersgate. The significance of Wesley's Aldersgate experience is monumental. Without it, the names of Wesley and Methodism would likely be nothing more than obscure footnotes in the pages of church history. So this conversion experience, true conversion experience, completely changed Wesley's life. Wesley aligned himself with the Moravian Society in Fetter Lane, London. In 1738, he traveled to Germany to Hernhut, the Moravian headquarters in Germany, to study. And you can actually go to this place today. It is still um, operated by the Moravians. On his return to England, Wesley drew up rules for the bands or societies into which the Fetter Lane Society was divided and published a collection of hymns for them. He met frequently with this and other religious societies in London but did not preach often in 1738 because most of the parish churches were closed to him. So he's had this experience. He is ready to truly preach from what he knows to be true, not just intellectually, but in reality. And the church is starting to shut the doors to him. Now, whether it was because he had a conversion experience or whether he was associating closely with the Moravians, I'm not sure. But, like George Whitefield, he began looking for a new way to preach. Wesley hesitated to accept Whitefield's call to copy this bold step. Overcoming his scruples, he preached the first time at Whitefield's invitation, a sermon in the open air near Bristol, England, in April 1739. Wesley wrote, I could scarce reconcile myself to the strange way of preaching in the fields, of which he, George Whitefield, 
set me an example on Sunday, having been all my life, till very lately, so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in church. Uh, and this is a quote from A History of Methodism in the United States. Um, oh, unfortunately, I, I left off the publication date. Um, sorry, my, by the way, my footnotes, for those of you technical people out there, my footnotes aren't very good. I apologize. <laughs> they, they need to be cleaned up. But... Now, this is a, uh, a 19th century print of an artist's uh, conception of Wesley preaching open air. I don't know. That's kind of dark, but I think you can sort of see it. Wesley was unhappy about the idea of field preaching, as he believed Anglican liturgy had much to offer in its practice. But he recognized that not all would come into the church, and not all churches would welcome him and the people he wanted to preach to. From then on, he took the opportunities to preach wherever an assembly could be brought together, more than once using his father's tombstone at Epworth as a pulpit. Wesley continued for 50 years to enter churches when he was invited, and taking a stand in the fields, in halls, cottages, and chapels when the churches would not receive him. Late in 1739, Wesley broke with the Moravians in London. He believed that they had fallen into a heresy of quietism, so he decided to form his own followers into a separate society. The quietist heresy, which many Quakers came to embrace, was seen to consist of wrongly elevating contemplation over meditation, intellectual stillness over vocal prayer, and interior passivity over pious action in an attempt to combine mystical prayer, spiritual growth, and union with God. So the quietists went beyond the pietists by saying, we just need to sit and contemplate and meditate and pray. That's all we need to do. And we can do that individually. We don't even really have to connect that much with other Christians. Um, this is, to them, this was the core of the Christian life. But Wesley and his followers were committed to evangelism and charity work and felt that quietism was not consistent with the full Christian gospel. And thus, Wesley wrote, without any previous plan, he began the Methodist Society in England. So this concludes the material that I have for today. Next time, we will do John Wesley Part 2, and we'll cover the rest of his ministry and life in that, uh, uh, in that talk. Uh, any questions or comments? We just have a few minutes before we are breaking. Anybody? Okay. Thanks for your attention.